Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, friends, thanks for joining our podcast. I want to tell you about something really new and exciting called patreon.com slash BP show. It's a great way to get uh, exclusive interviews with newsmakers, voicemails, personalized videos, political commentary, and early access to a special podcast called The Making of Bernie Sanders. Go to patreon.com slash BP show, patreon.com slash BP show. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Bill Press Show. My name is Peter Ogburn sitting in for Bill Press today. Happy Tuesday, March 20th, March 20th. Oh, my God. It's just it's like spring is almost here. It doesn't feel like it at all, but uh, it's rainy and nasty here in Washington, D.C., which is going to turn into snow. Snow? Two inches. Oh, my God. Are you serious? Supposedly. I'm going to take the under on that one. I don't think we're going to get two inches of snow. It can't stick. It's like 36 degrees outside. Well, that's good. See, see, Ray, I've always said that. I always say that whenever it looks like it's going to snow. I'm looking, because this is great radio and TV, I'm going to look at my uh, my app on my phone. Yeah, it it's not going to snow. It's just not going to snow, y'all. I think it's just going to be raining. Well, they were saying that it was going to be slush, which maybe. Not a fan. Not a fan of slush. Not a fan of any of it. Maybe this is the final frost before you can plant your tomatoes. I hope so. Ugh. Anyway, thank you so much for tuning in and for joining us here on the Bill Press Show. My name is Peter Ogburn, sitting in for Bill Press today. Remember, folks, we have our podcast up. Just go look for it on iTunes or anywhere else that you get your podcasts. Uh, We are putting those up for you right after the show today. Uh, I am ably assisted by Ray Rogers, running the board. Hello, Ray. Good morning. Good morning. I have a question for you. Yes. Would you ride in an autonomous vehicle, a self-driving car? Okay, it's a nuanced answer because the answer is yes if there are only if there are no other cars on the road that are driven by humans. Like if it was an entire city enclosed where it's just autonomous. That's your cars, threshold. Yes. That's not a bad one. I've always said I will definitely ride in a self driving car. I won't be the first person to ride in a self driving car. Right. Like right now when it's in the experimental phase, absolutely not. And I think that we were both proven correct. Yeah, so this uh, the reason I ask is yesterday, uh, so Uber has been using these self-driving cars, which I didn't, re- I mean, I knew that they were putting some into the into the, uh, into the the mix, but I didn't realize they were going to be quite as prevalent. They got same. A, hmm? Yeah, same. I didn't realize that. I knew that they were testing them, but I didn't know that if you were to call an Uber in specific places, it could just be a car. Showing. Yeah. Well, we have our very first uh, fatality. Uh, from a self-driving Uber. This one um, was in Tempe, Arizona. A woman was walking her car or walking her bike across the street when one of these autonomous cars struck her in the crosswalk and she died of her injuries at the hospital. Uh, It was a self-driving Volvo. Um, There were no passengers inside the Uber vehicle at the time. 
I heard Which, that it also didn't recognize that someone was crossing its path at all. It didn't slow down. It was just going 40 miles per hour. That's crazy to me. I mean, I mean you feel like that's one of the things. I, I, I'm not trying to be flippant about it, but it feels like that's one of the things you should. That's one of the kinks you should have ironed out. Exactly. But so my threshold is based on the fact that these cars are driving on a human programmed algorithm. That, yeah essentially assumes ideal conditions. Yeah. So it can't react the same way that you would if you were driving. There was no indication that the car attempted to slow itself before the collision. Yeah, there you go. I mean, look, I, I think that it's... I want, to, I want to be careful about how I choose my words here. I think it's great that we're going in this direction, and I think autonomy for these vehicles is going to be very cool once we get the kinks ironed out. The kinks worked out, but like, that's a bad look. It's so sad. It's awful for this family. And, oh, it's terrible. I mean, add this to another thing that Uber has done wrong. Yeah. Look, Uber is, at the end of the day, a fairly bad company. An awful company. A fairly bad company. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, I, I hope that, like, Somebody comes along and does a better job of what Uber is doing. I'll just put it that way. Anyway, we got a great, great, great jam-packed show today on the Bill Press Show. Stay tuned, everybody. We've got uh, Niall Stanage from The Hill coming up. Uh, we got Pema Levy from Mother Jones. And we finally got a look at Donald Trump's opioid plan yesterday. Uh, we'll be talking about that. So stay tuned. Great. On TV and online. This is the Bill Press Show. Yes, indeed, it is the Bill Press Show. Hi, everybody. My name is Peter Ogburn, sitting in for Bill Press today here on a March 20th, Tuesday, all day long. It's uh, release day for Bill's book, so he is out doing book publicity. So my name is Peter Ogburn, sitting in uh, for Bill today. Gosh, it, once again, it's just like. An avalanche of news uh, that we were not necessarily prepping for. Uh, I want to start, first of all, with this story out of Austin, Texas, which is, again, I think gives a very kind of highlights the dangers of a presidency like Donald Trump in that we have so much other stuff going on that this story out of Austin has essentially passed us by. Last night, overnight, another bomb went off near Austin. This is a FedEx factory or a FedEx sorting facility uh, outside San Antonio, Texas. Uh, Another bomb went off with shrapnel, I should point out. Um, And they have not officially said that this is linked to the Austin bombings. But it's hard not to have that thought when when you see the story. Um, Black Caucus lawmakers in Austin, Texas want to classify this as ongoing terrorist attacks. And so, like, you wonder what's the difference, right? Like, why are we bothering with the semantics of it all? Well, once you acknowledge that this is a terror attack and once you acknowledge that people are being targeted, uh, the rules change a little bit. The game changes a little bit. How you approach the investigation changes a little bit. And, for example, with the Unabomber, 
um, after the first couple of bombs went off and someone finally called it out for what it is, a terrorist attack, uh, you get more resources. People sort of converge on the story, and it, it took them, God, what, what did we say yesterday, right? It took us like 20 years to figure it out? It was 20 years of terror by the Unabomber, which is just unfathomable. Yeah, and the scary thing is he was able to go off the grid for like years at a time without sending a bomb and then just resurface again, which is, you, God, you hope something like this doesn't happen here. Um. Anyway, look, my point in all this is when you've got the constant chaos out of the White House and you've got talking about, uh, we're constantly talking about Donald Trump and what he's going to give to Mueller and how he's going to talk to Mueller and where we see uh, photos from Stormy Daniels. We'll get into that in a moment. And what's our latest plan going to be to combat the opioid crisis? When you got all this stuff flying around out there, stories like this get sort of lost. And it's really, it's really sad. It's really messed up. It's really depressing also because if you look at who tradition well who has been the target so far we don't know who this fifth bomb was intended for but it's happening on the east side of austin which is primarily a minority um neighborhood and so it's hitting hitting it's hit uh african-american homes and latino homes yeah so like that's what we're dealing with here folks uh that's what's going on in austin texas and i don't think the president has said anything about it i haven't heard a (laughs) statement which shows a clear lack of leadership as most right like look Say what you will about Barack Obama. Barack Obama, again, I've said, not my favorite president. But but there was a connection to the community. Like He viscerally it, understood the emotional needs right, of right. Americans there's a connection, in a way that Trump never will. There's a connection to his constituency that goes beyond his constituency, I should say. It's like his entire, like the, the country. So he, he knew how to talk to the country and talk them through hard times. And gosh, wouldn't that be nice if we had something like that now? And in general, he just showed sympathy and empathy in a non-performative way. Sure. Whereas Trump is like going down to visit Parkland and he's grinning and giving the thumbs up. Giving a huge thumbs up and a grin. Because nothing says, I feel your pain, like hamming it up for the camera or i mean when he goes to puerto rico and he's just wearing this massive red hat his wife is like completely disconnected from the situation wearing five six inch stilettos and it's like there's just such a huge disconnect between trump and his family and the rest of the u.s so i just mentioned the stormy daniels story uh this again is one of those stories that like any other president this would be the biggest story of of their presidency, but it's it's fascinating to me how the Stormy Daniels story just like pops up and then goes away, and then pops up and then goes away. I love I, that it might be a woman who also happens to be a sex worker that may take Trump down. I, yeah, I want to be very very clear. I don't think she's going to bring Trump down. No, unfortunately, I don't think anything can really touch him. No, I, the corruption I just, is I, too deep. I just I just don't think it's gonna. I just don't think it's gonna happen. But I do. I will revel in the fact that he's getting completely dragged by uh, uh, by Stormy Daniels and her lawyer on news channels across the nation. So. Uh, last night, Twitter was freaking. I was going to bed last night. I was checking Twitter, which bad move right there. Bad move, Peter. We've talked about this on air so many times. I know. I know. I'm so bad. I'm so bad about it. Uh, but it's like a drug, Ray. I mean, sometimes I'm just like, oh, I got to see what's going on. So I log on to Twitter, 
And I see everybody running around saying, uh, oh, boy, we're going to see pictures of Donald Trump's penis. I can't think of something more terrifying. Good night. To go to bed. That's what I went to bed to. Yeah. You want to hear about my dreams dreams last night? Sweet dreams, They weren't nice. They were not (laughs) pleasant. Uh, everyone's saying like, "Oh, we're fine. We're going to see these pictures." Stormy Daniels has pictures of, of of Donald Trump in a compromising position. So I just want to be very clear. I want to read the quote from Stormy Daniels' lawyer, Michael Avenatti. I believe that's how you say his name. He went on MSNBC with Ari Melber last night. And here's what he said: "Quote, Ari, you know as a good lawyer yourself that good lawyers don't play their entire hand on the first go around. We have a lot of information." A lot of evidence, a lot of documents that haven't come to light yet, numerous pieces of evidence, numerous facts, and we're not going to show our hand. So that's what he said. So there were some dorks on Twitter that ran around. Claude Taylor, this guy, this true fact stated guy, he's based in D.C., political Mm -hmm. lifer. He's got nearly 20,000 retweets on this story, on this tweet where he says, Stormy's lawyer on MSNBC, I'll paraphrase, quote, we have photos of Trump's penis. Okay, I just want to read the quote again from the lawyer. Right. Good lawyers don't play their entire hand on the first go around. We have a lot of information, a lot of evidence, a lot of documents that haven't come to light yet, numerous pieces of evidence, numerous facts, and we're not going to show our hand. So it's sort of a quantum leap to go from that to we have pictures of Trump's hog and we're going to show it to you. It's like, just terrible. That's Twitter at its worst. It's also. Twitter at its worst. It's Twitter at its worst. So uh, look, what I want to be very clear about it. What I want to be very clear about is they are not saying that they have. I, I can't. It doesn't even sound like they're hinting at I that. I hate. Well, uh, let me put it this way. I could see how someone would say. You know, like almost wishing it to be true, like, oh, we're going to finally see these things because it would be embarrassing to Trump and all of that. Sure, but but maybe off air and offline and in a personal conversation, but not on Twitter to spread this massive rumor. Sure. And like everybody tries to play friggin lawyer on Twitter, right? Like all these people try to act like they know exactly what what's going on. So essentially what the lawyer is saying is, look. We have evidence that shows and proves that Stormy Daniels and Trump had this relationship of whatever nature, and that could be, like, written texts, that could be photos of them together at the timing that she's uh, talking about, that could be handwritten notes, like, it could be a lot of different things. But the fact that we automatically made this leap to, we're finally going to see Trump's I, I really wish I could figure out a better way to say Trump's penis. Like, just... It doesn't those, have the ring that you're looking for? Those words coming out of my mouth. It's just... <laughs> I just didn't think I was going to say it this many times in my entire life, much less in the last 10 minutes. Um, so, like, look, guys, just just relax. Just chill out. The Stormy Daniels stuff is salacious, obviously. Uh, we we all dislike Trump, and so we'd like to see him get embarrassed. But here's what here's my theory: uh, Donald Trump has never been naked. He's never been nude. He's the guy when you go to the pool who like gets into the pool with his with his t shirt on, or like 
like doesn't take his clothes off all the way when he has socks. Like that just that that's the kind uh, of guy he is. Socks on guy. He's the socks on guy. He's the socks uh, on guy. No. Don't be that guy. Stop putting this image in my mind, Peter. I'm sorry. For, it's yes, Tuesday and it's early. It's early. I am very sorry to be putting these images in your head, but I don't think he's ever disrobed completely. I think he showers in the swimsuit. <laughs> he's like afraid of being naked. Why though? Why? What? I'm curious. What makes you think this about him? Because I think a lot of things about Trump, but I don't necessarily think that he is afraid of being naked. He wrote about it in one of his book, and I wish I could find the tweet, but I, I don't. I don't have it right off offhand. But Ashley Feinberg, who's fantastic, uh, pulled a a, a a a quote from one of his books where he talks about like being at the pool and how he likes to have his robe on and all this stuff, like. Okay, someone just tweeted at me, excuse me, did you just admit you dream about Trump's penis? No, I didn't admit that I dreamt about it. Roll the tapes, people. We actually did say that, but it's taken out of context. It was a nightmare, not a nice dream. Yeah. Anyway, look, I just... Everybody relax. Let the Stormy Daniels thing happen. It's going to be embarrassing enough for Trump. I really do believe that. And I don't think that we have to, like, wish these... uh, horribly outlandish scenarios. Like, I just don't think that Donald Trump has been doing that. Well, I'm I'm also going to tie this back in because, you know, one of Bill's latest pieces on NBC and something that we talk about a lot is how Trump really thrives in this chaotic environment. Yeah. Yeah. But this seems like an instance of non, like, Chaos that was not created by Trump, and he's squirming, yeah. and he doesn't know how to handle it. Yeah. Um, and so I do wonder if this will sort of tie into like the Mueller investigation, how he just doesn't know how to handle it. And although it might not be Stormy who takes him down, maybe it's Trump's reaction sure. to it that is his downfall. Sure. No, I mean that, that's a fair point. Uh, you know, I I do. I go back and forth on this, right? Because. As I've talked about a couple of times on the show, like we've had people uh, say, like, "Oh, the heat is finally catching up with Trump. This is going to be too much for him. That he's gonna he's gonna get out of office." And that's just not the case. It's just not going to happen. This is where he lives. This is where he thrives. But we've seen him. Bill talked about this yesterday on on yesterday's podcast. Like, this is Trump unhinged. This is Trump unhinged. And I, I again, Maggie Haberman, I think, had the most telling tweet of the Trump presidency thus far when she tweeted a couple days ago. What you have to realize is the first several months of the presidency, Donald Trump was terrified and scared and a little confused. And he finally, at this point, feels like he has a grasp of the job. And he understands the power that he wields. Terrifying. And that is terrifying. That should scare you. Because when you look at what's going on with the McCabe firing and the Mueller tweets and the clearly the vague threats towards Robert Mueller, it's a very... uh, He's clearly testing the Republicans. He's clearly seeing just what he can get away with. He's seeing if he can fire this guy, McCabe, 
in a ruthless fashion to where he takes away his pension and embarrasses him in, in front of the country and ruins this guy's, like, as McCabe said in some of the stuff that he put out there, he's like, this has been really hard on my family. Like, yeah, I get that. And so the, you have this public humiliation of a guy that doesn't deserve it, and what are the Republicans doing about it? Not a damn thing. Not one thing. And so you've got Donald Trump now drunk with power feels a little strong, but also maybe a little accurate. I think it's not strong enough, Peter. Well, he's just like, it's not that he's drunk with power. It's just that he is completely blinded by... Mm-hmm. what you should and should not be doing. He's just put that completely aside, and he's just doing, I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm not sure that Trump actually has that internal mechanism where he can discern what is right versus wrong. No, and I, I think, think you're right. I think that he really revels in seeing someone squirm with his like foot on their neck, and yeah. I think that maybe stems back to the fact that he, as you always say, is a creature of the New York tabloid media. This is how he knows to get his name out there and yeah. also he's a reality television producer i mean he treats the white house like it's but the apprentice but behind he, the scenes he, he's also a guy that revels in this like cutthroat business environment right like if you look at how he was brought up right he believes they're killers i've always felt like he aspires to be that kind of man that like buttoned up businessman but where his father succeeded he fails in well, so many ways well here I, I disagree with that in the sense that I, I think that i don't think he's a very good businessman mm-hmm. but i think that like the kayfabe sort of like showy nature of business like right. oh i don't care i'll take you know right like, like i think he's got that down to a t Sure, I agree. And it's it's sort of like it's like all cat no or all hat no cattle, right? Like mm-hmm. he could talk the talk. I don't think he could walk the walk, but he could go out there and he you're fired, you suck, you're terrible. This is awful. You're fired. Get but out. Can he do that? Because he has to do it. He's via, done it via Kelly and via tweeting. That, that, that's a fair point. But at the end of the day, the buck stops there, right? Like it's right. Uh, I, I I don't disagree with that point. You're right, and I and I, and I don't think that he has been. Uh, like a great leader in that way but he understands that he has that power to make other people do it so he's just sort of like playing along sure. it's all a, it's all an act really sure but the whole like formative years of a young donald trump of being a quote shark or a killer as his father described them right uh i think he's got that down to a t and firing people when they're when they are um when they need a hand or belittling people when they could use your help, or when they come to you and say, like, I need this, and then mocking them. I think that's what capitalism and, like, corporate uh, America is like. Oh, absolutely. There and he's got no it down to a T. better embodiment than, like, the corrupt capitalist nature of America right. than Donald Trump. Like, I think he's got that down to a T. And so, like, even this story, I was going to talk about this yesterday, the, the story about uh, Rex Tillerson. Mm-hmm. So John Kelly had an off-the-record meeting with reporters at the end of last week, and he was talking about the firing of Rex Tillerson, which, as you pointed out, Donald Trump did not fire Rex Tillerson face-to-face or, or through the phone. He told John Kelly to give him a heads-up that he might be tweeting something about him. So... 
John Kelly told reporters that when he called Rex Tillerson, that Rex Tillerson was on the toilet. And that he had a bad stomach bug from when he just visited Africa and he was recovering and he had to take the phone call while he was in the can. Now, why would I bring that up? Because Donald Trump loved the fact that John Kelly shared that tidbit. Of course he did. And... The Daily Beast, Lachlan Marquet, and our friend Aswin Soup saying wrote that story when it was supposed to be off the record and basically said, screw you, man. Off the record doesn't mean you get to just tell us whatever the hell you want and we don't get to print it. Right. So they printed it. And Pointer actually came out with a great piece. It was just like, look, off the record doesn't mean anything to these guys. So, yeah, print, print away. You're totally in your right to do it. But anyway, the whole point of, of, of getting into that story is like, embarrassing people when they're down, kicking them when they're down, not helping them out. That is the Donald Trump way. And John Kelly is willing to play that game. So like, you're not going to hear me say poor Rex Tillerson very often, but like that was pretty low. I think it's super low because there's a certain sense of, you know, attacking someone politically or I know, I don't know. It just seems like such a vulnerable human moment that adds nothing to the story other than humiliation. Yeah. And the fact that it was off the record even more underscores the fact that these people, they really don't have hearts. And and, and I know that's such a low barrier and we're expecting these people to care, but I don't know. Yeah. Going back to the Obama example that you had earlier in the Austin bombings, like they that just never seemed performative. And it may have been on some level, but these people can't even get their acts together enough to show respect for just humanity in yeah, general. Yeah, that's, that's, that's all it comes down to. Yeah. And I, and, I, and I wish that somebody on his side, I, know, I guess Jeff Flake has, but yawn. Uh, yawn, but snooze, it, Jeff Flake, just be quiet yeah, at yeah. this point. Low energy, Jeff. Uh, I, I, wish, I wish that somebody would just have a, just like, look, guys. You're the president of the United States, okay? You don't have to be winning political points off of people when they're down, all right? Like, show a little class. But I say this all the time. What do you expect? The man wore scotch tape to tie the flaps of his tie together during the inauguration. I know. Like, I get that. But I guess guess what I would want to see is some Republican somewhere, somehow, stand up to this even a little bit. And they're not. They don't care. And that's well. I, and I think that they're afraid of Trump. Let's. That's be what it is. I think they do care because, like, they are not going to lose anybody by being nice, right? Like, establishment except GMP, Trump, except for Donald Trump. And so, like, they have to sort of try and figure out how to toe the line here, which is really embarrassing for all these politicians, and frankly, pretty sad. But. I don't think anybody is going to come forward and tell him that. So until then, buckle up. We're going to have to deal with this unhinged Trump until Democrats get some sort of power. By the way, the latest on the uh, Robert Mueller situation after Donald Trump's Twitter rage out on Robert Mueller. Yesterday, Donald Trump hired a man by the name of Joe DeGeneva. Does anybody know who Joe DeGeneva is? I do. 
First of all, Joe DeGeneva was around. Uh, he's been around for a long, long time here in Washington, D.C. He worked with uh, Ronald Reagan for sure. Uh, but when you hear a lot of people talk about the deep state and everything the deep state is doing, well, that you heard that partially because of Joe DeGeneva pushing that theory. He is the one that said that the FBI is working to frame Donald Trump. The FBI, in a coordinated effort, is working to frame Donald Trump. Folks, what kind of black mirror weird reality are we living in? Joe DeGeneva has been brought on the Trump legal team. So a man who has pushed conspiracy theories, kind of like Donald Trump, has been hired, uh... Quote, former U.S. Attorney for the District of Columbia, Joe DeGeneva, will be joining our legal team later this week, said Joe Succulo. Succulo? <laughs> Succulo. I think it's Succulo. I think it's Succulo. Uh, quote, I have worked with Joe for many years and have full confidence he will be a great asset in our representation of the president. I mean, they're not wrong. Wow. It is a great representation of the president. <laughs> <laughs> it, is a, it, it is a great representation of the president, Ray. That's a very good point. Um but truly, this is like a Black Mirror episode. I mean, what kind of upside down world do we live in when the GOP actually has fully made the leap into anti-FBI territory? Well, you know, I have this thought a lot, actually, about like, like the fact that you've got all these Washington goblins that have joined <laughs> onto his legal team, right? Like Jay Sekulow has been around forever. Joe DeGeneva has been around forever. Sure. And like these are just these are just guys who have been in town for 30 years now, 40 years now. And like at what point do some of these guys just kind of stake their their claim elsewhere? Just say like, look, we're not going to work with you. I mean, I, what am I wishing for? They're lawyers. Peter. No, they're not going to do that. It's just about money and power. I know. You know the city. Hashtag this town. Hashtag. Uh, Also, by the way, in the ongoing Robert Mueller investigation, Trump lawyers have given Mueller documents uh, that he has asked for. Um, They're doing this not because they're good and wonderful people and they want to cooperate. No, 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 no. It's not that. It's that they want to try and limit the actual questioning that Robert Mueller gives of Donald Trump. So Donald Trump says, yeah, sure, hell, yeah, I'll go get interviewed by Robert Mueller. I don't mind. Yes, absolutely. I'll go do the interview. I'll go uh, uh, under oath and and, uh, and 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 answer these questions. Meanwhile, his lawyers are like, dear God, do not do that. <laughs> it is the worst thing you could possibly do. Because he will incriminate himself or he'll perjure himself. Oh, absolutely. Like, Within the first 10 seconds. We said it yesterday, but when Donald Trump opens his mouth, you can bet it's a lie. A lie is about to come out. By the way, I hate Dunkin' Donuts coffee. Ugh. (laughs) I know. Last week, I was forced to get it, and it was sad. Ugh. I like a little hazelnut. Just a little hazelnut in my coffee. I I just want a little hazelnut. Just a little hazelnut. Sweet or unsweet? Unsweet. They put like 15 pumps of sweet hazelnut in here. It sounds like I'm eating candy. Mm, sweet chemicals. Nourishing your bod. <laughs> I do have that glow about me. That's just the chemicals. 
Anyway, it's about 31 minutes past the hour. Uh, the other big story of the day yesterday, Donald Trump unveiled his plan to combat the opioid crisis, and it is sort of a mess. We're going to talk about that coming up here. Uh, oh, geez. It's it's really, really bad. We're going to be talking to Vice President of Criminal Justice Reform at the Center for American Progress. His name is Ed Chung. He'll be in studio here with us in just a moment, so stay tuned, everybody. My name is Peter Ogburn, sitting in for Bill Press. We'll be right back. Download our podcast, search for The Bill Press Show on iTunes, and remember to rate, review, and subscribe. This is The Bill Press Show. That is very important, by the way. If you do listen to the podcast, rate, review, and subscribe. And if you are listening to us now on WCPT in Chicago or in Indiana Talks or in Asheville or any of our other great affiliates, uh, you don't get the whole show. We do like a five-minute banter and headlines and some other stuff before that actual show starts, which you can get on the podcast. So go check out the podcast. You get the full entire show. Uh, get it wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And when you do, again, rate, review, and subscribe. Yeah, and if you would also like to see our beautiful shining faces every morning, I got that Dunkin' Donuts chemical flavored hazelnut glow about me. If you want to see that, I can feel it from here. We're basking in it on this first day of spring. (laughs) You can see us on YouTube.com/slash The Bill Press Show, where there's also a chat room that's always popping. Yeah, amen. All right, so go get out there, go find us. And uh, remember, we're on Twitter at BP Show. Okay, I am fascinated by Donald Trump's reaction to the opioid crisis. Uh, so I brought in Vice President of Criminal Justice Reform at the Center for American Progress, Ed Chung. He's in studio with us. Hey, Ed, how you doing, man? Good, how are you? Good, good, good. All right, I, I, before we get into the headline of Donald Trump uh, pushes the death penalty for drug dealers, which I really want to get into right. with you, I want to first get a little bit, bit of background on the opioid crisis. Um you hear everybody talk about how bad it is and how out of control it is and how we haven't done enough to confront it. What is sort of the state of the opioid crisis right now? How did we get so bad and and where is it bad? How is it bad? Give us some of the some of the details on yeah, it. Yeah, you know, Peter, the, the reason that's such a good thing to start with is because of the I mean, I, I heard your last segment where you were talking about anything that comes out of the president's mouth, you can be sure that there's some kind of liar yes. untruth in there, right? Yes. And so even yesterday he was talking about or recently he's been talking about the origins of the opioid crisis. And he's been blaming immigrants and he's been blaming uh, the lack of a border wall and so forth. This the crisis actually started in the late 90s or mid to late 90s when uh, people who are uh you know, everyday people, regular people who were suffering from uh, issues of pain management, mm-hmm. uh, you know, just going through things just, you know, whether it's joint pain or some kind of medical issue. And they would go to their doctors to ask for prescriptions to manage that pain. And so it, doctors would start prescribing. And in the late mid to late 90s, there weren't. Uh, how should we say, um, guidelines or regulations or some of these buzzwords in place uh, to know how, uh, how to prescribe for pain management. So doctors and then the pharmaceutical industry to support that effort and obviously to support their product uh, would push opiates as the pain management tool. And so over the next decade, I mean, we heard all of this. I mean, we're, you're talking about uh, millions of people being overprescribed medication 
to manage their pain on a day-to-day basis. And so as that happened, the addiction started happening. Now, the key thing to remember here is that, you know, when you're talking about supply and demand, it, it was it was a demand that was created by that that kind of uh, that situation yeah. there, you know. And so it wasn't like there was some, you know, the black and brown people were coming in and swooping in and right. taking and filling this void. I, I want to get into some of the some of the like how widespread it got, but uh, like when we talk about the medical industry right. and how hard they were pushing these things, because I think all of us have some kind of story about where we went to the doctor for this and they like they pushed opioids on us right right, right. like it, it it's happened to me multiple times um if it hasn't happened to you it's probably happened to someone you know, you know uh how complicit is the medical industry in terms of the crisis that's been created and what are they being held accountable for right now yeah that's a really good point i think one of the things to take take into account is you know whether or not the profession itself did enough to police themselves, yeah. I mean, that's a huge point that needs to be examined. Whether individual doctors uh, overprescribed on purpose, that's certainly an issue that needs to be looked into. Um, I think what we can say definitively now, though, is that the industry, you know, working side by side with the pharmaceutical industry really didn't do I shouldn't do, didn't do enough. It's just didn't such a. Enough. I mean, that's just a. I, I feel I feel guilty for even saying yeah. something that kind of bland. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. yeah. It, it was even more than that, and so I think where we are at right now is that as that um, level of substance misuse addiction ramped up, then came uh, some clampdown on uh, you know on these prescri- prescribing sure. um, rules and so forth. Okay, so. At that point, then when does it really get out of control? Right. When does it take the next step out of just, I've gone to the doctor and the doctor has prescribed me right. these opioids? Then where do we get to where it's like out of the doctor's office? So when you're talking about uh, some clampdown in the last like five years or so, you really see a spike in the last five years. There's two things that happened. One, when when doctors started pulling back a bit and mm. you, were, you weren't able to get prescriptions from your primary doctor um, and or I should say primary doctor from your doctor. Um, but then also people who are addicted or who have substance misuse issues would go to other sources to get the to get the same high that they did before. And so mm. that's when things like heroin, street level heroin started um, flowing back into uh, the United States. Wow. And that's when after that, you're t- hearing about fentanyl, which is a which is a mix, which is incredibly deadly uh, additive to that. And so you're looking you're looking at this kind of real um, upswing in, yeah. in deaths and overdoses over the last five to seven years. It's so scary, man. Right. right. Um, and and so like, whenever I read stories about this, they specifically highlight New England has a really serious problem. Uh, Appalachia has a real serious problem. Um, you look out in a lot of the Southwest, yeah. uh, they have a real problem. How, like the geography of all this, how does that play into this whole whole story? Yeah, it started at started with a lot of. Rural communities, a lot of uh, 
even suburban communities. And it, it really coincides with places where there are there's economic despair. So I'm from Ohio. I grew up in Ohio. And so not what only part of Ohio? In Dayton, Ohio. Oh, wow. No kidding. I lived in Dayton, Ohio for a little while. Are you serious? Yeah. The longest five years of my life were the, <laughs> were the, were the three months I lived in Dayton, Ohio. <laughs> All right, it's great in Dayton. I I, I love Dayton, Ohio. I can't I can't talk badly about it. But shout out Dorothy Lane Market. (laughs) Shout him out. I was I wasn't expecting this. Shout him out. Oh my god! Sorry, I didn't mean to throw you a curve. No, no, no. Dorothy Lane Market. They had these little old fashioned Coke bottles. Tell me about it. Coca Cola bottles. I should say. Yeah. And so yeah. My goodness, you're taking me way back. Oh, sorry. No, no, no. But like you know, places in Dayton, Ohio. um, You know, dealing with this issue, and so you're talking about a downturn in the economy, you're talking in 2008, 2009, you're talking about places like, uh, you know, Southeast Ohio and into what you're, you know, as you said, Appalachia, where you're looking at economic despair. And so when you don't have the resources in those areas and people turn to something to, you know, something else, um, then you have this kind of, the opioids kind of fills that area or drugs kind of fill that area. And so um, it's a combination of a whole bunch of factors, but it's really hit you know, rural suburban communities. It started, you know, with rural suburban white communities. And I think that's a huge um, aspect of this, not only for how it started, but for how people are reacting to it as well. Yeah. Okay, so let's get into the meat of what Donald (laughs) Trump talked about yesterday. Uh, This is what you came here for, y'all. I want to play the clip of Donald Trump talking about the toughness he's going to (laughs) show against these uh, drug dealers. That toughness includes the death penalty. There it is. He's going to show toughness to these drug dealers. Are we? Are we? Are we actually going to see this, Ed? Wait. First of all, I, I just I told you during the break, but you made me watch a speech of his. I, for, I, I need just to want apologize. you to know that. Yeah, I need to apologize. I was just going to get the readout. I was yeah. just going to read the newspapers <laughs> or the re- online. You but actually, watch. I it. actually had to watch. I it appreciate for, that dedication because you had. I mean, because for a thirty-minute speech, you have no idea what's going to come out of his mouth, right? None. And this was a prime example. Yeah. This this was actually planned, though. Yeah. It's not like something like he was just riffing off the cuff. Right. They were floating this idea around for a couple weeks at yeah. least. Um just recently, right before the speech, the White House came out and said, kind of put limits around what he was saying. So they were saying under existing law. And there is existing law. There's a kingpin statute that says if you traffic, you know, you know, obscene amounts of of opioids or any kind of other um, narcotics that you can face a death penalty if death results um, from what you do. Or you could actually, if you um, uh, traffic in that amount of drugs. Um, We haven't seen anything like that. It's constitutionally questionable. But the very fact that he's introducing this um, into the conversation when the rest of the community that deals with substance use, substance misuse, is going is running as far away yeah. from that position as yeah. possible, is really disheartening to say the least. I, I want to get into some of the other sort of direction that those are going, but but j- just like I, I don't want to ask you to make a prediction here, but like, will he get some sort of backing? Have it, has anybody come out and really like talked about this? Like Republicans, yeah. they obviously control the House and the Senate. Um, Will they let him get away with this? Well, one thing is that uh, Jeff Sessions was with him in New Hampshire when he said this. So it wasn't like... That's a bad sign, y'all. That's a bad sign. So it wasn't something that he just came up with and that he had no support with. The attorney general was pointed out 
again, because I watched it, uh, the attorney general. Sorry, I get it. I'm sorry. <laughs> the attorney general <laughs> was right there with him. And, and, it, and then just right afterwards, you heard a lot of, uh, you heard of several um, congressmen come out and say, words of at least semi-support. I think Chris Collins from New York uh, was saying something that he would he would you know be supportive or actually you know look into this or so forth. The other thing that happened with this though is that not only were you was Trump advocating the ultimate um, sentence, if you will, the ultimate penalty, but then he was looking to increase all other penalties yeah. as well. Yeah. And even people who are quote unquote criminal justice reform minded are starting to get on board with that. And that's the real concerning part. Okay, I want to talk to you about because you hinted at it there uh, about sort of the direction that we had been going with some of this stuff. Um, you are the vice president for criminal justice reform. Criminal justice reform used to be a big issue in the White House with Barack Obama. He talked a lot about it. Um, are all of those sort of initiatives and ideas that Barack Obama had talked about, are all those just out the window under the Trump administration, or where do we stand? Because because yeah. I, I would like to point out that criminal justice reform was a bipartisan idea. Yeah. Barack Obama agreed with <clears throat> the Koch brothers <laughs> on criminal justice reform. And so, you know, when Barack Obama was president 30 years ago is what it feels like. <laughs> you know, we have these conversations, but now... I. I I haven't heard any any conversations about real meaningful criminal justice reform besides kill the drug dealers. So it is it is still a bipartisan and nonpartisan issue. And it is still that is something that is being pressed, especially in states and cities across the country. What you're not seeing is the courage, again, of Congress to step up, except for most recently, probably back in February, the same bill that was being floated or that was being moved in Congress, the Sensing Reform and Corrections Act, um, and it had bipartisan sponsors, Chuck Grassley from Iowa, um, Dick Durbin from Illinois, Republican, Democrat. And, and it was voted out of the Senate Judiciary Committee. And so there was that movement there. The problem now, though, is that the Trump administration has ta- has basically cast aside everything else but a very narrow piece of that bill. So they no more police reform, no more issues about criminalization of poverty, no more issues of def- legal defense, providing defense for uh, for indigent people, um, no more reducing mass incarceration, no more sentencing reform. We're narrowing the pie down. That's like all the... Right. Okay. So we're narrowing the pie down to what they're calling prison reform. And we're not even talking about prison reform writ large, meaning getting rid of solitary confinement or severely limiting solitary mm-hmm. confinement or making sure that prisons aren't overcrowded or reducing prison rape or prison violence or things like that. What we're talking about is providing prison programming, which is important, prison programming for people who are returning. So of this big, huge pie that's criminal justice, the federal government is focusing on this, the small piece that happens at the tail end of the system. Right. So if you're going to increase, as Jeff Sessions has said, increase the number of people who are going to come into the system. He thinks that drug dealers, anybody who's in, is, they're violent. He thinks immigrants are violent. Everything's connected. So you're increasing the system, but then trying to do little things on the back end. I, I shouldn't say little things because I'm just, but in comparison. It's just a small part of exactly. the big picture. In comparison. I, I, I get what you're saying. You talk about the, the putting more people into the system. Right. Um, 
at what point does the system break? Well, the system was about to break um, probably about six, seven years ago. And there were there were 215,000 people in the Bureau of Prisons as, as inmates. That was, and the, one of the reasons uh, that put a strain on the government was the budgets as well, but also on overcrowding. That's not getting any better. Oh, that's not getting any better because the Justice Department is looking for whatever reason, to reduce their budget even more. Yeah. But that that started going down. So in the past six years, thanks to the clemency initiative that the Obama administration put in and other reforms, the number went from 215,000 down to 185,000 in a matter of like five, five years or so, yeah. which is a remarkable progress. Sure, yeah. But the problem is that Sessions specifically is saying we're going to reverse that trend back up. Yeah, for for no reason. That that okay. All right. That's I'm so the, glad you said that. Why? Because when you talk to people about Jeff Sessions, mm-hmm. Jefferson Sessions, Beauregard, Jefferson Beauregard Sessions, <laughs> uh, when you when, when you talk to people about him uh, 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 that have covered him for a long time, they all say the same thing. This is the job mm-hmm. he has always wanted. Mm-hmm. And so all of the abuse that he takes from Donald Trump and all of the uh, embarrassment he suffers at the hands of Donald Trump, uh, he doesn't care because this is the job that he wants. And so you really have to sort of wonder why it is that he wants this job so bad when his stated goal is to put more people in in prison. And if you look at the policies, it's typically more people of color Mm -hmm. that he wants to put into prison. Mm -hmm. I don't want to say why is that, because I think it's a little naked. But, like, what's the logic behind that? So I'm not asking you to, to get too deep in the mind of Jeff Sessions. Please don't ask me to do that. Because I don't think it's a very pleasant place to go, Ed. But, like, like, for those people who are more of, like, Lock him up, lock him up, lock him up. What? Why? Because there's no, there. it's a gut reaction, and it's something that feels comfortable, and it's something that feels knowable, and it's something that, on a very surface level, you can make a, a what you think is a logical connection. You lock up people who do bad for long periods of time, then society will be safer. But once you dive in beyond that, and I, you know we can get into this. If you, I'd love to get into this. Uh, no, yeah. I actually do want to get okay. into this. With so you, yeah. once you dive in deeper, what you're talking about is the effects of incarceration wear off the longer the the sentence goes. Yeah. So there's been study after study that says long term incarceration. You may get a short term blip or short short term decrease in incarceration if you ramp it up, right? Or sorry, uh, short term decrease in in crime if you ramp it up. Mm-hmm. But over the long term. The effects on the community, right? You're 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 breaking up families. Yeah. Uh, the effects on the individual who's incarcerated. You're really taking away opportunities for success later in life, and in, in terms of reentry and coming back out. But you, you're you're even for victims who say they don't they feel better or they feel more of a need to make sure that the person who who committed the crime is restored, if yeah. you will. I mean, those types of things have been shown to work and to prevent crime. And we are at some of the lowest levels of crime in modern history since 1991. Wait, wait. Donald Trump says he's going to send the National Guard <laughs> to Chicago because there were like the shootings were up a little bit last you, you year. You know what's crazy about that is that, you know, 
finally, Sessions and Trump acknowledged at the beginning, this kind of went unnoticed, Sessions did an op-ed in January that acknowledged that crime actually decreased or is looking to decrease, right? Do you yeah, remember yeah, this? Yeah, I do remember this. And so he then started taking credit for his eight months in office for changing the tide of what he originally called American carnage or what the president originally called American carnage. Yeah. That to me is just so nakedly just uh, just crass. Well, right? it's like, well, it's like Donald Trump ran, his slogan was make America great again. We all saw the big dumb red hats. And then when he gave that uh, uh, rally in Pennsylvania, he said his new slogan for 2020 is keep America great. <laughs> so in a year's time, we have made America great again, we and we're great. going to keep it that way. You know, you made my day. America is great again. I I, I feel I feel so right. Much. Yeah, I feel great. Yeah, I feel. We have no problems, Ed. <laughs> oh man. You know, to your point that you were just talking about, uh, uh, sort of a throwback, but HBO had that show, The Night of, mm-hmm. which I think was a great example of like how diabolical the prison system can be. When it doesn't, you know, work. I mean, we we sometimes forget the prison system is in place not as a form of like shaking our finger and punishing people. Mm-hmm. It's a form of rehabilitation, right? Like we we were supposed to send criminals there so that they could learn what they did was wrong and learn how to be better citizens and all that stuff. And instead, we're now so hyper focused on revenge mm-hmm. and punishment and all this stuff. And it's just like we've completely lost sight of what the whole point was. And there are people who go to prison and they come out more hardened criminals than they were when they went in. Yeah, and it especially happens. So this is this is the uh, point where um, research and studies show that when you put a somebody who is low at risk for recidivating and who is a low-level offender and you put them in a prison facility, a correctional facility, especially for a lengthy period of time, the chances of that person then... C- you know, being coming out and not recidivating goes down. So your your level of your risk of recidivism just goes high because of your time incarcerated. Yeah. And, and so, you know, I don't know if you know this, but I, for the bulk of my career so far, have been a prosecutor. I was a local prosecutor. I was a federal prosecutor. And when I was with the Justice Department, I was um, I was a civil rights prosecutor. I visited prisons because we were doing use of force cases against corrections officers. And that's the first time that I've, you know, was really one-on-one with people who were incarcerated. And to it's not only the sh- the shock the first time you go yeah. to see a, you know, maximum security prison or some of these prisons down um especially in the south or in the midwest, but the 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 conditions of confinement that they're in, I mean, to say that the, it's any way rehabilitative in a lot of situations is, is a joke, and that's what needs to change. Well, I got to tell you, man, this was a great conversation that was really illuminating on what some of the real problems are. When you hear Donald Trump go out there and talk about, you know, giving the death penalty to drug dealers, mm-hmm. it's obviously a flashy headline. Sure. Um, whether or not that gets actually done, we will see. Right. I'm not optimistic. I don't think that they're going to actually go through with this. I just don't know that he's going to get enough support. But the point is, it's not all about that. Right. There's a lot of other stuff going on that, again, I said this earlier with regards to the the bombing in Austin. It's like Donald Trump has created an environment where we are constantly talking about other things, where we need to be talking about important things. Uh, And, you know, prison reform is one of those things that Barack Obama got right. Yeah. 
and the Koch brothers got right, yeah. and we were heading in that direction. It just feels like we have not only pumped the brakes, we've just hit a wall, yeah. and we're, we're going completely backwards. Um, I really appreciate your time, Ed Chung from the Center for American Progress. Uh, stay tuned to the Bill Press Show. Niall Stanage from The Hill is going to be joining us here in just a little while. Think that the chaos at the White House is over? <laughs> I think it's just getting started. <laughs> we'll talk more about that with Niall Stanage and all the other happenings from uh, the Trump White House in just a couple moments. So stay with us here on the Bill Press Show. My name is Peter Ogburn, sitting in for Bill Press. Very quick break. We'll be right back. This is the Bill Press Show. Hey, everybody, this is Bill Press. Thanks for listening to the Bill Press and Friends podcast. And now do yourself a favor. If you haven't already done so, subscribe to the show on iTunes. Here's what you do. Just search for the Bill Press Show. Then you can take us with you and listen in anywhere you go. And you'll get new shows from us as soon as they're posted. And one more thing. If you really enjoy Bill Press and Friends, please help us grow by telling a friend, writing a review, and giving us a rating on iTunes. It's so great to have you on board. Many thanks. Giving you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show. Live at YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Everybody, it is the Bill Press Show. My name is Peter Ogburn, sitting in for Bill Press today on a Tuesday, March 20th, 2018. Yes, indeed. Thank you for joining us here, whether you're watching on Free Speech TV or on YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show or listening on one of our great radio stations all around the country or listening to our podcast. Good grief. What do you want from us? We're all over the place. I mean, my God, everywhere you want to be. Uh, we got a great, great show coming up. Final hour of the program. Niall Stanage from the Hill is with me. Good morning, Niall. How you doing? I'm good, Peter. How are you? Great. Don't you love the spring weather we're having here it, in Washington, D.C.? Isn't it fantastic? And snow to come, apparently. And snow to come. That's that's the word. I, Ray was saying we might get two inches today. Seriously? I'm taking the under. I'm going to take the under. I don't think we're going to get two inches. I don't think that we are either. I was just reporting what oh, I no, heard. No, no, I, I know, I know. I was just saying. Ray's just, just saying. reporting the facts. Just, yeah, just she, the facts. Ray, Ray reports. Just the facts. We decided. Yeah. News you can use. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, hey, Ray, I want to play that clip, uh, the very first clip we played, because 15 years ago today, we got this. Free nations have a duty to defend our people by uniting against the violent. And tonight... As we have done before, America and our allies accept that responsibility. The war in Iraq began. And may God continue to bless America. There is George W. Bush talking about the war in Iraq and the uh, uh, invasion of Iraq. The estimated cost prior to the war start was 50 to 60 billion. Actual direct cost? Any guesses? But ten times that much or more. Eight hundred billion dollars is what we spent. A number so large, can't even wrap my head around it. And it's still not over. So, like, look, I'm not going to make a political point here about you know Republicans and what they accepted and what they would stand for back then. Uh, I think you can make that own. <laughs> you, you you can draw your own conclusion from that. But like, eight hundred billion dollars we spent on the war in Iraq and what do we get out of it 
What can we point to? What great success can we point to and say this is this was all worth it? I'm having a hard time with that one, y'all. It was a big fault line in the Democratic Party as well. I mean, between the Democrats who, you know, the the, the issue of who voted for the use of force or who authorized it and who didn't was a big issue for a long time. A hundred percent. And I, I think for a lot of, of people slightly younger than me, uh, that was their moment of political awakening. Right. When you saw what the Democrats, frankly, a lot of centrist Democrats at the time, uh, were willing to accept from George W. Bush and willing to put the country into. And say what you will about Hillary Clinton, she, that vote for the Iraq war followed her all the way up until the 2016 election. And I know that there are Democrats who did not vote for Hillary Clinton because of her vote for the Iraq war. $800 billion doesn't even get into the number of lives lost on both oh, sides. Oh, no, no, no. No, 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 no. That's a good, very, very good point. I mean, look, we're that, that's just that's just the dollar figure. I mean, the amount of lives that were lost and political or, or, or it's sickening. capital that we lost around the world for that type of mm-hmm. stuff. Uh, anyway, I just I, I just feel like we had to stop and 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 talk about that. Um, we got a, a quick break coming up here in about a minute, but um, James Comey has a new book out. That could be interesting. Won't that be a Won't that be a fun read, Nile? Uh, it's number one or number two on Amazon about four weeks before it's due out, right? Oh yeah, yeah. The pre, the pre sales have it at number one already. So James Comey is going to get his story out there. I, I love that during the the Donald Trump sort of meltdown against Robert Mueller the other day, James Comey tweeted out, "Mr. President, the American people will hear my story very soon, and they can judge them judge for themselves who is honorable and who is not." For the low low price of twenty four ninety nine on Amazon, he didn't write that. Anyway, look, man, we, the Comey's going to get a story out. It's going to be really interesting. Uh, Niall Standage from the Hill is with us here. Uh, stay tuned. We're going to take a very, very, very quick break, and then we'll jump into all the happenings from here in Washington, D.C. Right up next. Stay tuned. On your radio, on TV, and online, this is The Bill Press Show. It is The Bill Press Show. Hi, everybody. My name is Peter Ogburn, sitting in for Bill Press today on a March 20th, Tuesday, all day long. Thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, Ray Rogers is running the board. Good morning, Ray. How are you? Good morning. I'm doing all right. How about you, Peter? All right is all I can ask for these days. On a rainy day where the news never stops. the upper limit sometimes. Uh, I, of course, cannot host the show alone, so I have brought uh, some help in. Uh, Niall Stanage from The Hill is with us in studio. Good to see you, Niall. Always a pleasure. How are you? I'm all right. Good. I'm all right. Uh, I, I, I first of all want to start out with <laughs> Stormy Daniels. <laughs> so, yes. so, on. so yesterday, Stormy Daniels' lawyer, a man by the name of Michael Avenetti, or Avenetti, uh, went on Ari Melber's show. And I want to read the quote that he said, uh, quote, Ari, you know, as a good lawyer yourself, that good lawyers don't play the entire hand on the first go-round. We have a lot of information, a lot of evidence, a lot of documents that have not come to light yet. Numerous pieces of evidence, numerous facts, and we're not going to show our hand, end quote. Now, people immediately made the quantum leap to... Stormy Daniels, yeah, 
has pics of intimate areas. Lil Trump. <laughs> Lil Trump. What, I think a, what, I, a, what I, a concept that is. Like I, 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 I think er, early today I kept saying she has pictures of Trump's penis, and I just could, I couldn't bring myself to say it another time. So Ray, she, Ray, you're about to weigh in on something there. <laughs> yeah, I said I think Trump's penis is better than Little Trump. Really? <laughs> yeah. I'm trying to figure out a better way to say it. I, anyway, what did the person that tweeted at us uh, yesterday call it? The syndrome that he had? You do know. I just don't want to say oh, it. I'm too Oh, I'm not going to say that on air. No, okay. it, was not, it was not a tweet that's to be read on air. But if you follow us on Twitter at BP Show, you might be you able to see it. You can find it. Another BP Easter egg. So it, the, people made this leap that right. we're going to see these intimate photos of Donald Trump. And I, I made the point. It's like, it's not exactly what he said. But no. it sounds like there mm-hmm. is some proof mm-hmm. that they had some relationship of a relationship of some sort. Yeah. She's going to get her side of the story on 60 Minutes this coming weekend. Mm-hmm. How is the Trump administration handling this, Niall? Well, for the most part, I mean, it's still holding fast to the denial, credible yeah. or otherwise, that they did not uh, have an affair. But, of course, uh, he joined that uh, suit late last week that is trying to uh, penalize uh, Stormy Daniels to the tune of $20 million, if I recall correctly, yeah. claiming that she broke uh, or is in the process of breaking a non-disclosure agreement. Um, to be sort of semi-serious but also get to your uh, point, I have always thought that the greater likelihood is that the capacity for uh, personal embarrassment is much greater or much more likely to be the thing that Trump is worried about. When Stormy Daniels sort of came to the fore, people had all kinds of exotic theories about, you know, whether it was to do with campaign finance laws or something more sinister or something more quote-unquote political. I have always thought, just given what we see and can observe of Donald Trump's personality, that it's more likely to be uh, the capacity, as I say, for personal embarrassment that causes him to be so uh, forceful in trying to push back on the Stormy Daniels stuff. That's so interesting because I think that's spot on, right? Like, I think Donald Trump knows what he can get away with mm. and he knows what his base or Republicans or his allies will accept. I think he knows that very, very well. Yeah. And, I, and I've talked about that before. I think that's his actual real skill mm-hmm. um, that a lot of politicians don't have, frankly. Yeah. But he, he, he's, he knows what he can get away with. And this is one of those stories that, like, there's not a lot of gray area if mm-hmm. all this comes out, right? And so he doesn't really have a way to spin this in his favor. Right. And also, it goes to a sense of sort of um, uh, machismo or alpha maleness that is very important to him. He politically doesn't really care if he gets criticized for, I don't know, sure. using crude rhetoric or <laughs> skating around some kind of ethical lines unless it's something totally egregious. Right. But something like this actually could have the potential to undermine his sort of his appeal to his base in a more serious way. It's just, you know, if you really dial down into what's really going on and what Republicans are saying and what the White House is saying and what Trump is saying, you don't know what to believe. Mm. Right. I think there was last week, I think it was when Sarah Huckabee Sanders had that own goal where she sort of admitted like right. that they had they had gone through arbitration. And it and went it was in like, the president's favor, which yeah. was a crucial kind of thing. Yeah. Right? And yeah. it was like, what? Yeah. 
That hadn't been out there. Right. And, you know, like, they've got the denial, then you've got these ties to her, and then you've mm-hmm. got the denial, and then you've got the, they were paying money to her to get her to shut up, and then they've got the denial, and they're, right. they're trying to stop the interview from happening on 60 Minutes, and it's just kind of like... I know. And and then going back to the time when Michael Cohen, the president's lawyer, first uh, came out and, well, he was kind of obligated to admit something uh, regarding this. But he it was a very, very lawyerly statement as to whether this $130,000 that was paid to Stormy Daniels was it, – it wasn't paid specifically by, by Donald Trump personally or by the Trump organization, but it was sort of vaguely phrased. Yeah, there was he, a lot of wiggle room in that statement. He tried to argue that he essentially did it out of the goodness of his heart. Without anyone knowing. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Just like – just as you do. Don't you have that one friend that just, just, just throws you 130 grr just because he loves you? Just to keep you happy. Uh, all right, so I want to get right into the tweets about uh, Robert Mueller because mm. Donald Trump jumped into it with both feet over mm-hmm. the weekend. Uh, it first of all started with the firing of McCabe mm-hmm. in a in an undignified manner, I would say, to, mm-hmm. to fire him moments before his pension kicked in. Um, and he tweeted about that, but then he jumped in and he says, the Mueller probe, this is, I'm quoting from Donald Trump's Twitter feed, uh, the Mueller probe should have never started, and there was no collusion, and there was no crime. It was based on fraudulent activities and a fake dossier paid for by crooked Hillary and the DNC, and improperly used in FISA court for surveillance of my campaign. All capital letters. Which hunt? He then goes on. Why does the Mueller team have thirteen hardened Democrats, some big crooked Hillary supporters, and zero Republicans? Another Dem recently added. Does anyone think this is fair? And yet there is no collusion. All caps. Uh, Yesterday morning, around this time, he tweeted out another tweet. A total, all capital letters, witch hunt with massive conflicts of interest. So it sounds to me like he is laying the groundwork for at least discrediting Robert Mueller, but possibly, probably firing him. Mm -hmm. Um how will Republicans react? That is the question. Uh, and as it happens, that is a perfect segue to what I'm writing about this morning, which is about this and about uh, Republicans fearing that he might try to fire Mueller. Now, some still think that he can be pulled back from that or, you know, the, for example, there's a thing in the House of Representatives pushing a special right. second counsel to investigate. They, they think they may be able to sort of um, calm Trump down in some sense in that way. If he does fire him, there are a lot of Republicans who do think that would be a political disaster, who do fear that he may run the risk of impeachment. Of course, for that to happen, it would require Republicans to vote for impeachment. And yeah. that's where the the rubber hits the road. Are they, are they really going to do that? Donald Trump's approval ratings low, though they are with the general population, are still around 80% with Republican voters. Uh, the Republican Party has not, in most people's estimation, shown uh, enormous moral courage in standing up to Donald Trump at other times when he has transgressed certain norms. So what will happen if we get into that scenario? Oh, man. What will happen indeed? I don't... I. I don't know. I mean, I'm, I, I I kind of keep hoping for that one moment, and I obviously say this as a progressive, but mm-hmm. like I'm hoping for that one moment where a Republican will just say, "This is too much. Mm-hmm. This has gone too far." Mm-hmm. We like the Republican Party. I disagree with a lot of their ideas, mm-hmm. me personally, but like 
I understand where some of them are coming from, mm-hmm. but like a lot of what Trump does isn't based in any of that. And mm-hmm. so for the good of the party, for the sake of the party, you'd like to think that there's a faction somewhere that will stand mm-hmm. up to this, but it really hasn't happened yet except for Jeff Flake, mm-hmm. who, by the way, still voted for just about everything that mm-hmm. Donald Trump put through. Mm-hmm. Lindsey Graham said that if he did fire Robert Mueller, this would be beginning the of beginning the of the end mm-hmm. of his presidency, and yet... He goes out golfing with Trump. Mm-hmm. And like, this isn't the first time Lindsey mm-hmm. Graham has said that. He called it a red line, I think, at, at another point. But Lindsey Graham is still tight with the president. Mm-hmm. Trey Gowdy said something, but he's on his way out the door. Mm-hmm. John McCain has stood up uh, to, to Donald Trump, but he's not in the Senate right now. He's sure. recovering. I just don't see anybody that's, that's even signaled that they would be willing to put their mm-hmm. political capital on the line to make this happen. Mm-hmm. That that's at at this point. That's really the only thing that that could that could change things, right? Is it, if a Republican it, did that? It, it is at this point. I mean, this of course is why people are looking at the midterm elections so sure. intensely because sure. if uh, Democrats were to take the House in particular, then that changes the whole shape of this. They have subpoena power. They also have the power to vote. Uh, to impeach, of course, impeachment and removal from office are two different things. Yes. You have to go to the Senate for the second part of that. But right. but the House does have the power to impeach. So, yeah, but, but right now, I, I mean, I agree with you. I think that there are clearly Republicans like Lindsey Graham who are more willing than others to criticize Trump. But at what? How far are they willing to go if he pushes it to the extreme? Yeah. If he were to fire a Mueller or something like that, then then that would be a serious issue. I, I, I've talked about this before. Uh, Maggie Haberman had a tweet last week where she said Donald Trump is essentially at this point um, testing the mm. Republicans to see how far he can take mm-hmm. this. And that for the first couple, several months of his presidency, he was a little confused and scared and intimidated. And even though he would never admit that, mm-hmm. uh, he was all of those things. But now he sort of feels like he has full control on it. And in your piece on The Hill, thehill.com, Trump is back to relying on his instincts. Right, right. Uh, boy, oh boy, is he ever. Uh-huh. I mean, it doesn't really look like he's working with advisors or taking advice from anybody. He's just, mm. this is Trump being Trump. Yeah. Um, and he's also lost people like Hope Hicks, who, I mean, I'm sure Hope Hicks doesn't have too many admirers in the audience here, but she is somebody who is perceived to have been able to sort of calm him down to some extent or, or I, to know how yeah, to deal I, with his moods a little bit. I, I have to say... I, I want to be very careful how I say this. I don't think that Hope Hicks is a sympathetic character, mm. but I, I, I think that Hope Hicks is one of those people that's like, there will always be a Hope Hicks right. in Washington, right. D.C. There will always be a Hope Hicks. Mm-hmm. And there were Hope Hicks uh, types for Barack Obama, and there were mm-hmm. Hope Hicks types for Bill Clinton, and there yeah. were Hope Hicks types for everybody. Yeah. And so, like, I'm not necessarily a Hope Hicks, one of these, you know, get out the pitchforks, sure, right? Sure. Even though I, 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 I'm not trying to be too sympathetic yeah, to yeah. her, but, like, look, Every presidency has some version of that. But Donald right. Trump at this point, does he have someone super close in his inner circle? I mean, wh- when I spoke to people at the White House whenever Hope Hicks first announced she was going to depart, the way that they were describing it was, yes, I mean, obviously he has he has aides around him. There are people that he knows for years who he calls up. But they described Hope Hicks as that person who is kind of important in a way in every workplace, even if the workplace happens to be the White House, which is 
essentially the person who knows when to push the boss, when to try to persuade him to pull back, when to try to persuade him to change his mind or whether to say, no, we'll come back some other time and try to change yeah. his mind. That person who can read his moods to some degree, as you say, that's a completely separate issue from whether one agrees with the policies being pursued by this administration or not. But that is where her loss was being most keenly felt, I think. Yeah. It's just kind of fascinating to watch him figure this out. Mm. Because Ray and I were talking about this earlier, about sort of he's such a creature of the business world. Mm -hmm. And I know a lot of people have pointed to the fact that, like, he hasn't been the most successful businessman right. in, in in practice. In theory, right. he plays it off quite well. But right. but I do think what he has mastered is that sort of professional wrestling type of mm-hmm. nature that that the business world mm-hmm. sort of forces you to to to, to encounter, right? Mm-hmm. And so, like whether it was John Kelly belittling mm. Rex Tillerson mm-hmm. uh, to reporters after he was fired and said that he when he took the phone call. Right. He was in the restroom with right. a stomach bug. Right. And like that is perfectly Trumpian. Right. That Very is perfectly so. Trumpian. Yeah. Uh, or whether it is w- taking one of your perceived enemies like McCabe and mm-hmm. firing him mm-hmm. 24 hours before his pension kicks in. Like mm-hmm. that is perfectly Trumpian. Right. And so I don't know, man. Like whether or not you're, I, I, I tried to do the whole both sides thing, mm-hmm. but like. Whether or not you're on either side of this issue, you just have to admit, like, this is not normal. What he's right. doing is not normal. Like, the norms that that a American president mm-hmm. have practiced for generations are com- kind of out the window. And, yeah. I, and I don't think it's going to get any more stable. Right. And, and to that point, just to pick up on the tweets that we started off this yeah. discussion by talking about, on that point of normality, it uh, this is a, a slight uh, hobby horse of mine, when he talks about 13 or 18 or however many hardened Democrats, and people sometimes come back and say, well, there are actually some Republicans, uh, you know, Mueller himself is a registered Republican. But, like, that's not really the point. The point is you don't get to select the political leanings of people who investigate you for any kind of uh, criminal uh, offense. I mean, you were saying you're a progressive. If you're stopped for speeding, you don't get to say, well, the police officer voted Republican. (laughs) So that's... Voted for Trump. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, you know, that's not how it works. Right. No, that's a very good point. That's a very good point. And it's, it's... But that also gets back into the sort of business nature of how he looks at it. He's constantly mm. looking for allies. Right. Or, or enemies to or target. Enemies. Or enemies. Yeah. Yes, I- I- exactly. Um, so I want to get into uh, uh, something else you've been writing about was Russia mm-hmm. in general. Right. right. Like separate from the Mueller stuff. And, and we had this story with Great Britain mm-hmm. uh, where Theresa May came out and, and said that Russia was absolutely culpable for mm-hmm. this. I thought that maybe the best quote that Donald Trump has ever said mm. that sums up the campaign is he said, well, we're looking at the story, we're waiting for the facts to come out, and if we agree with them, mm-hmm. we will we'll say something. We're waiting for the facts to come out, right. and if we agree with them, <laughs> meaning the facts, if we agree with the facts, then we'll do something. But uh, to, to their credit, mm. Donald Trump did admit that he agrees with Theresa May that it's clear that the Russians had had something to do with this. So now it's going to get really interesting because Democrats, I think, have been waiting to see just where Donald Trump would fall in mm. terms of criticizing his buddy, Vladimir mm-hmm. Putin, 
uh, well, he's criticized him now, so now what? Right. This has been a really interesting story because when this first became prominent and Theresa May first accused Russia in very forceful terms of being essentially responsible for poisoning this former double agent and his uh, and his daughter, and a, a police officer in Britain was also caught up in that. Um, the, the White House originally came out rather hesitantly. Uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders didn't really blame Russia the first time she had a chance to. But again, interestingly, as time went on, Tillerson came out much more strongly. Nikki Haley at the UN came out very strongly. And eventually uh, Trump himself did say things that were more forceful than were used to hearing from him on yeah. Russia. One of the uh, interesting things to look at now is it seems as if Britain might push for stronger sanctions on Russia. Is that something that uh, that Trump will support. Obviously, this comes against the backdrop of uh, Putin winning an election. Though there were irregularities in that election, there was ballot box stuffing. His main critic was not allowed to run. At the same time, Putin is apparently legitimately popular in Russia. So there's a whole load of complications here. But it's a really fascinating story. Yeah, I, I'm genuinely fascinated mm. by it because, you know, I think that. I'm one I'm one of those progressives that like when people talk about Donald Trump winning the election of 2016 I don't put the blame solely on Russia right, right? like I think it was mm. a totally winnable election by Democrats right. but I think we were naive to think that mm. they had nothing to do with it mm-hmm. but it is really weird mm. his reaction and his his knee jerk response to the Russia stuff. Right, no. As everybody uh, says. I, absolutely. I mean, going back to the fact that it was way back last summer that the, the Senate, by an overwhelming majority, <clears throat> passed uh, new Russian sanctions uh, intended to make sure that there couldn't be kind of shadiness, for want of a better word, on the part of the administration. And the administration simply never imposed them. They yeah. just sort of said, eh, well, it's good to have them on the books. They're having a deterrent effect. <laughs> yeah. yeah. They're having a sort of theoretical deterrent effect. It's a very strange argument. It's it's so weird. Okay, so I, w- I want to pick up on, we, we kind of started down the path of the chaos in the White House. Mm. Um, we've seen so many people leave mm-hmm. or get fired or depart, however you want to look at it. They're, they're, they're gone for whatever reason, True. right? And one of the problems is they can't keep people in these positions. I, I, I forget who it was now. It, was, it just blanked. Somebody was fired and, like, the, the deputy was sort of, like, probably going to be the person. But the deputy had quit back in January. So, like, there's nobody there. I forgot what job that was. Right. But it, it's just the exodus out of the White House. Mm-hmm. And, by the way, we are not done, mm-hmm. according to most reporting, says that Donald Trump wants to get rid of even more people. Mm-hmm. He even said... After he fired Rex Tillerson, mm. he said, I'm pretty close to getting the cabinet that I want. I'm pretty close to getting the cabinet that I want. I've been fired or, or got rid of a lot so of So, like, if you were a member of the cabinet at that point, you got to be wondering, holy crap. Yeah. So, I don't want to ask you who's next, but right. I think what what is the environment over there? Like, yeah. how are people feeling and how can they work there knowing that they're constantly on the chopping block? I think it's very, uh, it's a very intense atmosphere. And I do think, uh, just on a human level, it's very difficult for people, not only because there is the turnover that you uh, talk about, but also because of the general 
treatment of people, you look at someone who still is there, like Jeff Sessions. Oh. Jeff Sessions has been uh, humiliated numerous times by the president, suggesting that uh, he shouldn't have recused himself. If Trump had known he was going to recuse himself from Russia stuff, he wouldn't have appointed him. I, that he's fallen down in various other ways. The story of when Donald Trump just dressed Jeff Sessions down, and they mm. said that Jeff, some of the reporting was that Jeff Sessions stood there and cried. Mm. And... He's still there. Right. So it's amazing. He's still there. Yeah. I, and actually to link this back to the um, to the Mueller stuff that we were talking about, I mean, so so Sessions is there but has recused himself. Rod Rosenstein uh, is there. We'll see if he is uh, pressured to do anything with Mueller. If uh, Rosenstein were to uh, resign, his deputy is on, a woman by the name of Rachel Brand has stepped down herself. <laughs> So then it would go to the Solicitor General, whose name now escapes me, sure. would be the next in command. So that is something that's absolutely central to the whole political debate that we're having. And there's this whole thing of like, oh, so she's not there anymore. So who's, you know, it's very It's so fascinating, right? Because it's like the classic, it's not just a Washington game, but it's definitely a classic Washington game. Like, I will be the assistant to mm. blah, 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 right, blah, right. blah, blah. Because you know... Mm. Like, it's a fairly transient town. People are going to leave, and right. then you just constantly find your way up. Like, mm-hmm. the, nobody fails upward better than here in Washington, right, D.C. Right. Trust me. <laughs> I know. I'm in the host chair today. <laughs> too um, modest. Too <laughs> modest. <laughs> but, like, they don't even have those, like, right. hangers on that take these crappy jobs yeah, yeah. knowing that one day it'll probably pay off. They don't want to even risk it. Right. They don't I, even want the payoff. No, exactly. And I mean, I think there is a legitimate fear on people's part that because there's all these legal issues swirling around the White House, yeah. you know, that's so. Well, it's not okay, but that is bearable. If you are Rex, Rex Tillerson, the former CEO of ExxonMobil, you have a fortune of, you know, whatever. Right. But if, again, this is not to be overly sympathetic, but if you're some junior, junior staffer on, by Washington standards, a somewhat modest salary, and you think there's a legitimate possibility that you could be stuck with, you know, a quarter of a million dollars in legal bills, that's right. a pretty strong disincentive. Yeah, no, totally. It's just, I part of being president is... Keeping the trains running on time, okay? Mm-hmm. And that can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people, but, like, sure. there, there's there got to be some form of order, mm-hmm. I think. Like, you've got to be able to run your shop. Um, you know, Ben Carson's got to be able to have a very nice dining room set. <laughs> uh, Scott Pruitt needs to be able to have a soundproof booth for him to make his phone calls. Uh, as all of us should, really. Ryan uh, Zinke needs to have a, doors that cost a quarter of a million dollars. Right, right. Uh, you know, you know, the important things, Niall. <laughs> Life's necessities. Yeah, yeah like, come on, come on. Uh, you know, it, it, it's just covering the White House these days is just no matter what you're like, where you your politics, like, it's just exhausting. Yeah, it's just exhausting. You do a great job keeping up with it at the Hill, thehill.com. Go follow Niall Stanage on Twitter at Niall Stanage, N I A L L Stanage. Uh, my name is Peter Ogburn, sitting in for Bill Press today. We do have to take a very, very quick break, and we will be right back. Pema Levy from Mother Jones will be joining us here, so stay tuned. Bill's commentary, the best clips from the show, all in one place. YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. 
indeed. It is the Bill Press Show, 33 minutes past the hour. It's the last segment of today's show. Uh, but don't worry. If you missed the earlier segments, we have them all up in a podcast. It's going to go up right after the shoe. Uh, just go look for the podcast anywhere that uh, you get your podcasts. iTunes is a great place to start. Uh, and if you're there, rate, review, subscribe. If you want to watch the show, of course, we put the whole show up on our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash uh, the Bill Press Show, and of course, we are on Free Speech TV, and good grief with all the plugs. Uh, we're on Twitter at BP Show, at BP Show. couple of comments. I first of all need to um, warn you that we have been talking about Donald Trump's nether regions because of what Stormy Daniels' lawyer said Last night, when he was on Ari Melber, saying that they have, quote, a lot of information, a lot of evidence, a lot of documents that haven't come to light yet, numerous pieces of evidence, numerous facts, we're not going to show our hand, end quote. And a lot of people interpret that to say, like, we have dick pics from <laughs> Donald Trump. Which I don't believe necessarily because I, I, I believe that Donald Trump has never, ever been naked. But, but, but. You think it just goes from clothed to sexual activity like there's no intermediate period where a picture could have been snapped no i don't think so <laughs> no i don't think so i i said i told you i told you what he is he's a socks on guy uh, yeah i think so he's a socks on you guy. know donna in the youtube chat room um had a suggestion for what you can call it what trump's angry inch Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> I'm anti that someone else tweeted us and said oh my god peter keeps talking about trump's do I have to read it? Trump's little orange cheese doodle. Guys, come on. Come no. on, let's grow up, guys. Come on. Come on. Uh, someone else says, I like the term Trump junk. I mean, there's a lot There's a lot of mm. Trump junk out there. Anyway, uh, find us on Twitter, at BP Show. We also have some polls up there. Uh, pardon the pun. We have some polls from... Uh, <laughs> Yesterday and today, we'd like to talk about Ray. Please save me from this. Yes, indeed. Um, so yesterday, we asked you the question, will the GOP stand up to Trump if he tries to fire Mueller? And 7% of you said yes. Seven. 7%. Seven. Seven. You. You're wrong. I'm sorry. 63% of you said no. And 30% of you said some will try. I, I, I mean, I, I mean, I'm not mad at the results. I think I think that's probably accurate. I think our listeners are pretty spot on here. I think that's pretty accurate. Okay. I, f I, th I feel the same way. I feel a little bit worried for the 7%. Yeah. That voted. Yeah, I don't know. Okay. And then today, following our conversation with Ed Chung, um, which was a wonderful discussion on the opioid epidemic, uh, we asked, should the death penalty be a punishment for opioid drug users, as Trump has suggested? 3% of you say yes. <laughs> Yikes. 92% of you say no, and 5% of you are undecided. Okay. So you can weigh in, have your voice heard. It's early. It's early. Um, and we actually have gotten some comments already on that poll. So you can also let us know what you think. At Please BP do. Show. At BP Show. At BP Show. You can follow me on Twitter, at Peter Ogburn. Uh, and you can follow our guest, Pema Levy, on Twitter, at Pema Levy, P-E-M-A-L-E-V-Y. She's politics reporter for Mother Jones. Hello, Pema. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Happy spring or something yes. like that. Yes. Um, so I, I want to jump into uh, Jeff Sessions. Oh, good. Yeah. Because <laughs> you write a lot about Jeff. Jeff is some Beauregard Sessions. <laughs> Uh, your latest piece, Trump's lawyer really wants Jeff Sessions to appoint a, spe a second special counsel to investigate the FBI. Now, this is all about Jay Succulo, 
uh, Donald Trump sort of, it's succulo, right? It's spelled seculo, but I think it's pronounced succulo. Uh, and he is out there. He's sort of the face of the Trump legal team. And he's saying he wants Jefferson Sessions to, to look at the FBI, investigate the FBI. Um, where is that coming from? Yeah, I mean, Jay Sekulow is an interesting character in that, you know, he has this whole sort of, you know, legal background and, and you know, his life's work is um, defending Christian causes in court. Um, and so he- Like sleeping with porn stars and things like that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, all those great Christian Peter, causes. forgiveness. Forgiveness. Sorry, <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. I, 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 didn't can't, inter- I can't comment on that yeah, aspect I I, of I, it. I, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. <laughs> Go ahead, Pema. Well, no, so as a result of this, he has, you know, he's the chief counsel at um, a conservative Christian legal foundation, and he and his family work uh, at that organization and affiliated ones, and they have this radio show. And so he's on radio every day, basically... I suppose, in his personal capacity, um, you know, saying the same things as all the folks on Fox News, you know, who are saying, you know, we have to, like, fire Mueller. We have to, like, appoint a special counsel. Mueller is discredited. You know, the FBI is a disaster. You know, putting all of that outside pressure on Sessions that Sessions is clearly feeling, uh, you know, and then, you know, I guess by day he puts on a suit and goes into the White House and, and gives Trump his professional legal advice. Uh, yeah. So he's he's playing two two roles here at the moment. Did you see that there's another uh, lawyer that's joined oh, this? I was going to ask you about that. <laughs> Joe DeGeneva. So for yeah. those of you who may not know who Joe DeGeneva is, Pimla, can you tell us a little bit about who Joe DeGeneva is? I can tell you a little bit. I am not an expert okay. on Joe DeGeneva. But yes, he is... Um, Basically, he's someone who's put out uh, conspiracy theories about how the uh, FBI is going after Donald Trump. And uh, one little thing that I noted is that he, his wife is actually representing someone else in the Mueller probe. Yeah. And I'm not an ethics expert here, but it seems problematic to me. Yeah, I mean, look, Joe DeGeneva has been around for a while. He was a district court judge under uh, that was named by by Ronald Reagan. He was U.S. Attorney for the District right. of Columbia back in um, back in the eighties, the early eighties. Um, he's been on TV a lot. Yeah, he's one of those sort of you know conservative pundit legal heads. I used to p- pull back the curtain a little bit. I used to book him a lot on a former show I used to work on. Like I know him a little bit. Like I don't know him well, but I know him a little bit. Was it when you worked for, like, right-leaning radio, or? Yes. I'm embarrassed to admit, yes. Is the curtain too far back? <laughs> we pulled the curtain too far okay, back. Okay, I'm sorry, but, I'm no, sorry, no, no, but, but people know that. People know. I used, yeah, to yeah. Work, I used to work in, like, right-wing talk radio. That's, that's sort of where Which I think started. actually adds a fascinating perspective to a lot of what you say, because, I mean, you were in the thick of it for so long. Yeah, for a long time. Anyway, we used to have him on the show all the time, and, like, I used to think he was a fairly smart guy, but he is one of these guys that has essentially been pushing this deep state theory that the FBI is is not only working against Trump, but they are working to frame him, and and it's a it, it's a very the alt right has sort of grabbed onto this theory, right? Like that this is oh absolutely this is what's really going on. Absolutely, yeah. And I mean, if you listen to you know Fox News, I mean, it's just this sort of constant. Um, you know, barrage of, you know, Comey, McCabe, all these people need to be taken out in handcuffs. You know, they're, the entire like upper echelons of the FBI and DOJ need to be wiped out. There's yeah. this whole sort of conspiracy stuff. I don't know what that trans 
like what that becomes when it's a legal right. like defense. I don't know, you know, legally what what the <laughs> what you do if that's what you think is going on. Well, I I just I find it fascinating that that the GOP, specifically the Trump administration, but the GOP is definitely enabling it. But this war against the intelligence community. I mean, literally any other president, if they had gone down this path, it could have very well been a career ender. I say that, but then I, maybe it's just the tribalism would be so bad on both sides that like anybody could get away with it. But like, you actually have a a the party in power saying that the intelligence community, the FBI, the CIA, are working against the best interests of the country. They've thrown away, you know, uh, all these uh, intelligence reports. They don't pay any attention to them. They they say that they're essentially bad people. They're working against them, and so like the GOP has now put themselves squarely in a corner opposite of the intelligence community. Yeah. So right, that's one whole facet of this that is. Um a little bit was a little bit unexpected to me. I have to say, I'm fascinated say, by it. Yeah, totally. I'm fascinated. In the, in the same way that, that, like, I'm fascinated by the fact that GOP is now all of a sudden like deficits don't matter when, like, they spent the entire presidency of Barack Obama losing their minds and pulling out their hair and saying that that was the only thing that mattered. And so it's just sort of like a reversal of where they've always been. They're the put America first, keep America safe crowd. And now, I mean, I think the other interesting thing about this is that. You know, Trump clearly has gone after specific people. I mean, he fired Comey. He's been going after McCabe on Twitter for months. Um, But the White House posture is not and he calls this, you know, the witch hunt constantly. But at the same time, you know, the White House is really some of the people around him are really, I think, trying not to 100 percent go down that rabbit hole. I mean, you have people saying, hey, these Mueller indictments of 13 Russians is, you know, we we believe them. We think that the Russians were involved and we blame Obama but we we aren't denying the truth of of what you know Mueller has has um, stated in those indictments. So they're on tricky ground where they want to like believe the things that they think they can sort of frame in a way that's okay with them. But then they want to call it a witch hunt in all these other ways. And how is it a witch hunt if they then say, well, those indictments prove that the Russians were meddling? Right. It's just it's so much double speak. It's the same thing with the Stormy Daniels stuff, right? Like. It's a lie. It never happened. However, we did take this to arbitration, and they ruled in our favor. But it's a lie, and it's not true. However, we are going to fight to make sure that she doesn't get her side of the story out on 60 Minutes. It's a lie. It's not true. Well, here is a document that Michael Cohen signed, and there's a blank line for David Dennison, which is supposed to be Donald Trump, that he didn't sign. It's just like... Admitting the arbitration thing was, I think, a mistake. There's no other way. There's no other way to look at that. Like, that was not a smart move. No. That was that was definitely and Sarah, a mistake. And Sarah Huckabee Sanders, I think, has I mean, people always talk about how effective she is, right? Like I do think she's pretty effective. Because <laughs> when you just go out there and you attack and kind of make things up as you go or find a little bit of daylight that gives your argument some truth, you can be effective. So, like, yeah, she totally screwed that up, though. I yeah. Think. I don't even know why they gave her that as a talking point. I yeah, I don't they either. Did. I, mean, I don't, again, I don't I know don't if they know. did. I don't know how it happened, but it came out of her mouth. And someone all of a sudden told people her. were like, what? <laughs> someone thought this yeah. was information that should be passed around. And, again, that, that makes no sense to me. I don't know how you do that and not basically confirm what everyone's been saying. So I want to back up to uh, Jeff Sessions again. We, we, we started down that path. We, we, we there's, there's so much to talk about. But... Uh, Jeff Sessions, is he 
one of the people that's on the chopping block here when we talk about Donald Trump is mad with his cabinet, he doesn't love his cabinet. Like Jeff Sessions seems to have figured out a way to survive. Yeah, I mean, I absolutely think he's on the chopping block, and I think that Sessions thinks he's on the chopping block. Sure. I think that's why he did something like fire Andrew McCabe. Yeah. Which um, I believe, and other people have pointed out, violates his recusal pledges. I mean, he promised that he Okay, would... yes, thank you. All right, explain that for me, if you could. Yeah, okay, I, I would be happy to, because this is sort of a, a drum I've been beating for a while now. Good. Uh, Beat it here. Okay, so when Sessions testified under oath during his confirmation hearing, he was specifically asked by Chuck Grassley, will you recuse yourself from um, investigations, including Clinton's email investigation and the Clinton Foundation, which were, you know, an issue in the campaign, which you talked about on the campaign trail uh, for Donald Trump. And he said, yes, like I will go through. He didn't just say yes, but he said, I will I will go through a formal process to recuse myself. Great. Then. Two months later, uh, he has to recuse himself more broadly, right? Because it turns out he's met two times with the Russian ambassador. Whoops. And he, and the, the way he phrased that, people don't talk about it that much, the way he phrased it is um, he will recuse himself from any current and future investigations into the campaigns for president of the United States. So, again, we're talking Clinton, we're talking Trump, we're talking campaigns. Mm-hmm. McCabe was being um, investigated by the inspector general of the DOJ, um, for his carrying out of these investigations. He is a, probably a witness in the Trump investigation, um, and he certainly was running um, or, you know, or a big part of the Clinton investigations, and that's specifically what was at issue, we think, in this unreleased IG report. And so for, for Sessions to say, well, I'm going to make a decision at, and fire you, it's essentially saying, I'll recuse myself, <laughs> but... Then, depending on how you handle yourself in that investigation, I can go in and discipline you, and that's not very much of a recusal. That's not a recusal. If you're, if 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 you if Sessions isn't involved, but then after it's over, he can come and punish you based on how you've acted. That's not yeah quite a recusal. Now, yeah, I've talked that's to not people, how it works, right? Yeah, I mean, in fairness, I've talked to people who can say, you know, people can tell you with a straight face it's not a violation because he followed um, the recommendations of career officials. But again, as soon as you pull back anything beyond that first layer of what the career official said, all of a sudden you're looking at the investigation. Mm-hmm. And again, you're firing people for conduct in a matter that you're not supposed to have anything to do with. Right. And I think, I mean, it muddies the waters and it looks bad. And I don't think it's, I think it's possible it could come up in, in a lawsuit against the DOJ. And I, and I think that Sessions doesn't want to walk out on that limb unless he thinks, Firing McCabe is what's going to keep me in my job. That's that's what it comes down to. So you now have all these people, these cabinet members, who were uh, are people close to Trump, who are now trying to curry favor with Trump and trying to act like Trump, right? Like you had John Kelly. I mentioned this a couple of times already, and I hate to mention it again because it's so embarrassing for poor Rex Tillerson. But John Kelly told reporters, like, yes, I called Rex Tillerson, and I told him that Donald Trump was going to tweet about him being fired. And when I called him, by the way, he was on the toilet. Because he had a stomach bug from when he was in Africa. And so, yeah, he got fired while he was sitting on the toilet. Which, again, love him or hate him, that's very Trumpy. That's a very Trumpy way to carry out things. Jeff Sessions right. firing McCabe hours before he could collect his pension. Right. That's Which is very what Trumpy. Trump wanted. Not only did Trump want him fired, he did not want McCabe to be able to collect his pension. 
and he made it very clear, very publicly. Petty. Petty Pendergrass right there, yeah. ladies and gentlemen. That's who he is. He is all about revenge. Yeah. It, I mean, it really does feel that way. So, like, you know, I, I find Jeff Sessions to be just a fascinating character, and he's never going to leave that position as long as he as long as he could keep it. Like, he might get fired, but he'll, he'll put up with it. all the abuse he could possibly take. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, he's, you know, this is his dream job. Yeah. This is, I mean, he is passionate about immigration and crime. He wants to empower cops and prosecutors. He doesn't really care that much about civil rights based on the fact that it's not a priority. I think I can say that. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. so, and and this is the position that oversees all of those things that he's passionate about. So, yeah, he doesn't want to walk away. Good God. Um, I want to ask you about your most recent piece. Uh, the Supreme Court is getting involved with the gerrymandering. No, not. Oh, no, excuse, excuse me. The Supreme Court is not getting it. involved. Did I, did I write that wrong? No, 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 no. no, no. You absolutely go. I, I, just, I just misspoke. I'm, I'm okay, so sorry. Good. The Supreme Court, that was their last chance for uh, yeah. the, the, the GOP, as you put it, the GOP-friendly gerrymander, which I think we can all see that that's the case. Yeah. Um, the Supreme Court was sort of the last shot there. Uh, they are not going to take a look. So now what? Now we actually have an instance of a extremely gerrymandered map mm-hmm. being replaced with a fair map. It's crazy because that seems to never happen, but this is that one instance. Um, a lot of other places where maps have been thrown out for being too gerrymandered, uh, you know, either for partisan reasons or for for race reasons, um, the federal courts have put those decisions on hold. And so we're going to have a lot of elections in 2018 under maps that have actually been found unconstitutional. Um, Pennsylvania is one of those few uh, where because they uh, fought this out in state court instead of federal courts, uh, the state Supreme Court in Pennsylvania went through went, went through with it, threw out the map, put in a new map. And, uh, you know, the one recourse here basically was for the U.S. Supreme Court to step in and tell the state court what they could do. And that's a big deal if that were to happen. And ultimately, yesterday, the Supreme Court decided, no, we're not going to do that. By the way, uh, Connor Lamb, still not official that he's going to be the uh, the next represent, uh, representative from Pennsylvania. How how much does that sort of play into this whole gerrymandering thing? Uh, not a lot, because that's going to be under different districts. So he, I mean, okay, okay. Basically, it's actually interesting. Both Connor Lamb and his opponent Rick Sacone, I My understanding is that they will both actually run in a few months in November. Yeah. Um, but actually, in different districts this time. That's, That's my understanding. Yeah. But I, I mean, I, you know, unless something crazy happens, I do suspect that Lamb will officially yeah. win pretty soon. Kind of feels like um, that. Yeah. Okay, really quickly, um, I, I have to break in because we have some uh, a bit of breaking news, and I I hate to report this, but it looks like there has been a school shooting this morning uh, outside of Washington D.C., about sixty miles uh, southeast of Washington D.C. in uh, Great Mills, Maryland, sort of over sort of Eastern Shore ish in Maryland. Uh, I'm going to read directly from the NBC Washington website. Uh, quote, a shooting investigation is underway at a high school in St. Mary's County, Maryland. The shooting happened Tuesday morning at Great Mills High School in Great Mills, Maryland. Multiple injuries have been reported. A Twitter post from the St. Mary's County Sheriff's Office asked parents not to report to the school due to the incident, but due to but but to go to a high school in nearby Leonardtown, Maryland. 
Um, the March for Our Lives is this weekend. Uh, students around the country and people who support them will be uh, coming here to Washington, D.C., specifically those students that were at the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in South Florida. Um, but yet again, it looks like there is another school shooting. Uh, obviously, there will be more details that uh, come out throughout the day. And if you're listening on the podcast, uh, we're sorry for the lack of details at this point. But this is what we're working with right now. So be safe out there, y'all. Uh, God, again, really? Like four days before we're supposed to have this big march? Not good. Not good. It's heartbreaking. I also wonder if, Pema, do you know, um, I guess, sort of about Jeff Sessions' latest comments on gun reform and gun sense laws? Um, I know that he was sort of making some half-baked comments that seem neither here nor there. Yeah, I mean, the gun, the gun control issue and the gun safety issue, it's fits and starts, essentially, is what it looks like. You Like, Donald Trump had yep. this roundtable and all these big ideas, and they just completely... Oh, he walked back all of them. Oh, which we knew he was going to do. Right, absolutely. But at the same time, like, everybody just stopped talking about it. For a little while, uh, 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 politicians stopped talking about it. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really hard. And I I think this is something that the march and other things are going to have to do. I mean, this is one of those things that will, it's hard, and therefore it will fall to the, you know, to the side unless people really make sure to keep it on politicians' plates um, at all all times. The bump stocks are still legal. They're still being sold. Donald Trump said he's working on an executive order. Yes. I remember uh, when the Las Vegas shooting happened in October, the very like the very beginning of October, um, everybody agreed, we got to get rid of bump stocks. And they're still legal. They're still being bought. I think that's one thing. That, I think that they are potentially working on an executive order for that. I don't know. It's about how... damn time. <laughs> I mean, I don't honestly. know how. Yeah, I think. Th- I think that the Justice Department did actually draft some regulations that I guess would be put into an executive order. If he ever gets that. around to doing it, um, I, I think they did it. Okay, I do think they did. That. Okay, okay. Um, I, I'll give, I'll give them a little bit that. of credit. Yeah, I'll yeah. Give a little I bit think, of credit. I think that happened. Um, I don't know if that'll be implemented or like the legal basis for yeah. uh, such a regulation. Um, but no, I mean, for the most part, what they've basically been doing is saying we're going to crack down on criminals. We're going to prosecute people we find with guns. And that was already Sessions' agenda. Sessions already, you know, if you, you know, rob a store and you have a gun on you, Sessions wants to prosecute you 10 times as hard. Yeah. And so that was that. that's not something that they're saying, oh, crap, we're going to go and do this thing we didn't want to do. Like that, That's already what they want to do. Okay, so we have about two minutes left. In those two minutes, I want to ask you about um, some remarks Donald Trump made yesterday with Jeff Sessions at his side about the opioid crisis. Ray, do we have the clip of Donald Trump saying we're going to be very, be very tough? That toughness includes the death penalty. Quote, drug trafficking is not an offense for which someone can receive the death penalty. That is someone from the American Civil Liberties Union. They said that the Trump Trump's proposal was absurd. So Donald Trump says he's going to push forward the death penalty for uh, drug dealers. You have people immediately pushing back on it. Is this something that's going to happen, Pema? I don't think so. I don't think so either. Uh, my first reaction was similar to the ACLU's. I'm pretty sure that's unconstitutional. Um, I'm sure you could get a lawyer on here that would explain some sort of workaround. I'm we sh- did earlier in the program. Okay, there you go. Right. You sort of like define murder more yeah. differently and you got to pass a statute, I imagine. Um, even then, I it feels like a stretch constitutionally. And yeah. um, 
Yeah. But I don't think it's going to happen. It's a horrific happen. thought. <laughs> I don't think it's going to happen. It is a horrific thought. I mean, I remember two years ago when we heard that Duterte was doing this, we were all going like, oh, my God, this guy's terrible. And now here we are. Right. We're doing it. Right. We are doing it. That's troubling. It, it I will is. say this. I will. I will say this. The fact that Jeff Sessions was there with Trump when he made this announcement yesterday, I don't think is a good sign. Well, and did you see Jeff Sessions' comment afterwards? No, it was. Me. <laughs> I don't remember it now. I tweeted it, but it was basically like it didn't say we will pursue the death penalty against um, drug dealers, but it also didn't say that they wouldn't pursue the death penalty Great. against drug dealers. Great. So Great. people are reading it different ways. Great. Yeah, it's not the. Um, you know, it's not the pick-me-up you were looking for. I love that murkiness <laughs> from the Attorney General. Pema Levy, politics reporter uh, for Mother Jones. You can follow her on Twitter, at Pema Levy. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Folks, if you didn't see the whole show or li- hear the whole show, remember you can look at the podcast wherever you get your podcast from or check us out at uh, YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. This is The Bill Press Show.